Okay, so next week is our last week in the book of Revelation. So we're going to wrap this puppy up. Um, but as this is our second to last week, I've got a request for you guys. So as a preacher, there's an en- always an endless number of ways in which I'm trying to grow, in which I'm, I need to grow, I want to grow. And so as we wind down this series, and I'm looking forward to next series, things that are upcoming and so forth, planning for this upcoming year, it'd be helpful to hear ways in which maybe you benefited from this series, maybe ways in which you still have, or questions that are still open for you, that you are wrestling with, or maybe just ways in which I could better serve you through preaching. So any feedback or engagement would be uh, helpful and appreciated. If you've got constructive stuff, I just ask that you do it graciously. And, and I'm not looking for, like, you're too skinny. Like, I know that, all right? I don't, I don't need, you wear, too sh- you wear shorts too often. I don't, I don't want that. I don't care about that. Uh, those are second-tier things, all right? But, but if you've got stuff that you want to interact on and, and give some feedback about, I'd, I'd love to hear that. So, okay, last week we explored the idea of heaven, and we're going to continue in that vein this weekend also. So this is such a fitting end to this book. Right? We, it's painting a picture of where we are headed in our lives. Like, after death, what's going to happen? This is where we are headed, what we should be looking forward to. And so, uh, let, let's read these verses that we're going to look at this morning, and, uh, and then we'll tackle them. So Revelation, this is a bit of a longer section here, so you can kind of settle in. I'm going to read for a bit here, and then, uh, then we'll work through these. <clears throat> then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. 
And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. God, thank you for this vision of heaven. I pray that it would not just be a bunch of words. I pray that you would capture our hearts with this. I pray that it would be something that draws us in, that excites us, that causes us to look forward to it, and ultimately to look forward to you. So God, I pray in these moments together, I pray that you would Help us to understand what you are trying to communicate in and through these verses. I pray that you would encourage us where we need encouragement, where you would convict us of sin, where we need conviction, where you would challenge us where we need challenge. So God, may your Holy Spirit have sway in our hearts. In your name I pray. Amen. Okay, so this morning I want to look at a number of bigger themes that we see running through these verses, but also through Revelation, as well as through the whole of the Bible as well. So this section begins with John seeing a vision involving what he says, the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So it's talking about marriage in a sense, right? So if you, if you know anything about heaven, the idea about, of marriage is odd, in a number of senses. So first of all, if you're familiar with Matthew 22:30, which says this, for in the resurrection, men and women neither marry nor are given in marriage. Uh, that's teaching us. The Bible teaches us that marriage in the sense that we're accustomed to is not part of heaven. Okay? So the fact that John is seeing a vision where there it's talking about a bride uh, the wife of the lamb, it creates some questions maybe for us. But another odd aspect relating to John seeing the bride is the fact that he actually, when he sees the bride, he actually is seeing a city as well. He sees Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. So as readers then, and we'll have to put this together a little bit, but as readers, we're led to believe that in heaven there is a bride, who is also a city. The bride is a city. Okay, 
So let's have our weekly reminder about how we read this book of Revelation. We will significantly confuse ourselves if we try to read this book with normal methods. Like so many people have tried to read this book, to read it literally. We will confuse ourselves if we try to read it literally. We have beat the drum that we must read Revelation symbolically since the first week of this series, and we have tried to come back to this reminder over and over. And here, near the end, we are still reminded of the importance of reading this book in the way John instructed us to back in the very first verse of Revelation. We must read it symbolically. We must read it in light of the whole of the Bible as well, but we must read these verses symbolically. So what's going on here then? As I have mentioned numerous times up here, marriage isn't simply about the two people involved. It's not primarily about having companionship. Marriage is not primarily just sharing responsibilities. Marriage is not primarily about not being lonely. Marriage is not primarily about your pleasure. Marriage is intended to be a picture of how Jesus is united to his church. The bride being spoken of here is Jesus' church. Okay? So Jesus, who is the husband, being united to his bride, who is the church. And the bride then, as we've read and noticed already, is also a city. So the idea of a city is primarily talking here about personhood. Okay? The city is talking about people or personhood. So like a church is not a building, it's people. So also then here, Jerusalem is primarily a people. Not so much a city, but a people. God's people are like a city. A secure city. A righteous city. A city that is ablaze with the glory of God. Radiant, remarkable. So though we are able to learn things about heaven as this city is described, we've got to be really careful here not to read about this city in a literal sense. The way in which we would usually, typically, think about a city. In all of this, then, we understand marriage in heaven is different than marriage here on earth. Okay, but I want to help us think about the bigger storyline of the Bible as it pertains to marriage. So here at the end, we are reading about a garden-like city. Okay, so chapter 22 gives us this picture of a river and trees. Okay, that, that's not necessarily what we think about, maybe in Minneapolis, but that's not necessarily what we think about like an urban center uh, of a true City, But that's the picture we're getting here of heaven as it pertains to the city there. So what's actually going on here as John's getting this vision is he's taking us back to the beginning of the Bible. To the beginning of the story where marriage began. So if we go back to the beginning of the Bible, we read in Genesis 2.25, it talks there about the man and his wife. Okay, so this is talking about Adam and Eve as they were in the Garden of Eden back at the beginning of this Bible. Now, if you go back to that garden, you read some of the context around this verse, verse 25, what we read about there is also onyx, a river, and the tree of life, which 
we're going to see are also things that we just read about here in Revelation as well. But we read about these things in Genesis 2, but then sin was committed. And what happened to Adam and Eve? They were banished from the garden. They were driven out. Okay, now, the point of the Bible is not to get us back to the garden. That's not the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible, then, is to get us back to the creator of that garden. What we could say is the gardener. The point of the Bible is to get us back to him. That's what we see happening here at the end of Revelation. Now, it's not coincidental that Jesus was mistaken for a gardener. In John 20, verse 15, so this is right after he has uh, resurrected, okay? And people are coming, they're seeing the empty tomb, right? And some people run into Jesus, and they think that he's the gardener, the gardener of that garden where Jesus was buried. So it's not coincidental that Jesus is identified in this way, because he is the ultimate gardener. He's the one that we are getting back to. And so as the whole of the Bible unfolds, Jesus the Lamb does everything needed to reconcile his people back to God. To reconcile God to his people. And the place then that they meet with God, their home, their resting place, what we're reading about here in Revelation is a garden-like city. And so this is what we see, right? Back in Genesis 2, it's talking about onyx and a river and the tree of life. And this is also then what we're seeing here at the end as well in Revelation 21 and 22. And so part of what I want you to see is how the whole Bible is connected. God's trying to get us back to where everything began. Not just locationally, though. That's not the point but to get us back to the creator, to the ultimate gardener. So though there's importance to the garden and the city, the real emphasis here is on Jesus. He is the focal point. Jesus is what makes heaven heaven. What makes heaven heavenly. And this is why people are fixated on, and we get this vision that John sees throughout Revelation, that people are looking at Jesus over and over. He's the point. He's where everything is turned towards. But then we also see Jesus' emphasis directed towards those people that he came to earth to save. So he loves his church deeply. And so we see some of this evidence here as there's names in foundational places written throughout heaven. So we see this strong correlation between city and people in the description of the city. So it talks about the 12 tribes of Israel being inscribed. And then also on the foundations of the city is found the 12 names of the 12 apostles. So, so the point here is not just that there's this foundation of the city or that there's these bricks that are being laid, but the fact that there's personhood here, that God is caring about his people. And so there's this crucial part of heaven that's Jesus at the center, but then also his church being there with him, them being united, reconciled, drawn near to one another. 
Okay, so this is a big part of what we need to see heaven is all about. Another aspect that becomes clear in these verses is the splendor of heaven. The fact that heaven is glorious, that it's distinguished. The listing off of the valuable jewels speaks to the distinctiveness of heaven. When I was reading that out, I was thinking, like, I wonder if there's anyone here who wished they were just handed the mic and had to read through these things. Just so you know, like, there's a couple of these words I had to go back and I listened to on YouTube. Like, how do you pronounce this? So, like, full disclosure here, right? Uh, But we should not overlook the fact that heaven is depicted as this glorious, radiant place, right? But we also have to temper this for the here and now because there's this sinful tendency in all of us to idolize really nice things, right? Like we see something nice and our attention, our affection is drawn towards that thing. So often in our experience on this old earth here and now, we find ourselves infatuated with the good gifts that God provides or the good gifts that he has enabled through innovation or creativity in the drive of humans, So heaven is filled with good things, but heaven isn't simply about us enjoying good things. Those good things are part of heaven because this is who God is. He is a good gift giver. This is what he does. He gives good gifts. And this is what James 1.17 says for us. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So that's not talking about a future reality. James is talking about a here and now reality for us. Every good gift that we receive here and now comes from above, comes from God, and it's intended to drive us to him as he displays his goodness to us, as he shares his goodness with us. The intention then is that we're driven to worship God, but all too often we take those good gifts And what do we do? We discard God and we give our attention and our focus, our affection towards the good gift rather than to the giver himself. All right, so we don't want to miss the point here. But but the goodness of God and the goodness of his gifts, we need to understand, doesn't change. In, In fact, it's just going to increase. So all the good gifts that we receive here and now, it's going to multiply. It's only going to increase as we find ourselves and in heaven. So in heaven, God is going to relentlessly give good gifts. And in that time, we will finally handle those good gifts appropriately. They will drive us to worship God, as they're intended to do now. So so we should hear a little bit of a press here. Every single day, like, like we have good gifts everywhere everywhere. We should constantly be reminded of this call, this turning towards Jesus to worship him. Whether it's a car that runs really well, that blows really good heat or really cold air, right? Or, or food that we are able to enjoy. The, the fact that we can gather together with Jesus' church having healthy body. Like, there are so many things that we can look at in life and we can say, that's a good gift. That's a good gift that we have been given. So there's a call in this for us here and now. Verse 22 then provides us another interesting statement. It says there, and I saw no temple in the city. Now, 
if you know the Bible at all, if you've read other parts of the Bible, this almost seems sacrilegious. The fact that there's no temple in heaven. This is the God who has led his people to build a tent, to build a tabernacle, to build a temple as a place where they could come and they could meet with God. They could worship him. The temple is where the people would come to worship God himself. And isn't this then the part of the linchpin of Satan's deceit? I think to get us to believe that heaven is about us dutifully, repetitively going to this place of worship, going to a building to endlessly sing songs to a deity that's so fragile his feelings will be hurt if we don't. I think that whether it's cultural or whatever it is, like we oftentimes get this picture of heaven that it's just going to be dull. And it's going to be this same thing over and over. We're going to go to the same building. We're going to do this, sing the same songs. And, and for some reason, that's the picture that we've gotten of heaven. So what we find in the description of heaven is it is a place of worship. But there's no temple building that we're going to go to worship because Jesus is the temple. And all worship is focused on Jesus. In the world in which we live, we should see glimpses of this reality, of this turning towards Jesus, worshiping him. In the midst of all of our brokenness, this world is still filled with so many awe-inducing realities. Beauty, kindness, skill, compassion, sacrificial love, um, the list that I just gave as well. Any good thing in this world is intended to draw our gaze back to Jesus, who is the giver of all good gifts, to stir our affections to worship him. And so we should push against any tendency to think that worship in heaven will be boring. It won't be. It will be a physical world existence that is far better than anything we can imagine here and now. Heaven will be filled with all of the goodness of God, which we do see tons of glimpses here. It will be adventurous, exhilarating, exciting, filled with anticipation. We've got to understand, when we think of heaven as being filled with boredom, we have to understand that boredom is a reality of a sin-filled world. Boredom results because of the curse of sin. That won't be part of our reality in heaven. The idea that you get bored and all the things that you run to, whether it's scrolling on your phone, or like, I want some different food, or, or whatever it is that you think that you feel when you're bored, that won't happen. That won't be part of our existence in heaven. There will be no boredom. So don't buy the lie. Don't buy the lie that because we can't see it, we can't understand it fully here and now, that that won't be the case in the future. That is how heaven will be. Okay, so before we move on from this theme of worship and the temple, I want to do a little bit of what's called biblical theology. So the city was measured out, it says, as 12,000 stadia. Okay? So this is almost 1,400 miles. Okay? So its length and its width and its height are equal. Please don't take these dimensions literally. I'm going to come back to this, okay? But we should not read these numbers 
literally. If, if Revelation has taught us anything thus far, don't read the numbers literally. But let's talk about this for a minute. So if its length and its width and its height are equal, this is essentially a cube, right? So think of Rubik's Cube on a really mini scale, right? It's essentially describing a cube. Okay, so one of the great things that we can do whenever we read the Bible is to ask ourselves the question, where else do we see this idea? Where else do we see this theme pop up? How can the rest of the Bible help us understand what's being communicated here? And in this case, we can go to the Old Testament. 1 Kings 6.20. It says there, the inner sanctuary of the temple was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it with pure gold. Okay, so notice, length, width, and height are all the same, right? So this is another cube. Now, this is describing something called the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place. So this is where God's presence would descend to. So when God told his people to build temple, tabernacle, okay, in the inner part of that, there was this one place, and it was called the Holy of Holies. And this one place, only one person could go there on one day of the year. So the high priest kind of the spiritual leader of Israel, could go into that one room one day out of the year to offer sacrifices, to make atonement for Israel on what was called the Day of Atonement. Now, everyone else in Israel was cut off from that room. And this room is where God's presence would come. Okay, so the high priest would go in there. God's presence would be there. It wasn't safe for anyone else to go in there because if they went in there, they would die. Okay? But the rest of Israel was cut off from that one room. They couldn't enter it because of their sin. So they were separated. It was a picture of them being separated from God because of their sin. But now, that cube has been replaced by another cube. That cube was pointing forward to a greater cube. And now, because of Jesus' sacrifice, everything has changed. The picture that we get then of heaven is that now we can be in God's presence. And this is what heaven is all about. Worshiping God in His presence forever. See, heaven is the ultimate holy of holies. This is what was being pointed to back in the Old Testament. We now have access to the place that we've longed for, to the place that we were created for, to the place that we couldn't go to before, but the place that now will satisfy us completely because of Jesus. Heaven is the most holy place. So I want us to see here why it's important for us to not read this literally. To not read this mathematically. We need to read Revelation and all of its numbers theologically. It's communicating something to us about God. Not just literal numbers, but it's trying to convey realities about who God is. The measurements aren't literal, but they're intended to convey the immensity, the beauty, 
the goodness of this place. It will be huge, big enough for us to explore forever. And we can't exaggerate how good it is to use the word, a word like grandiose, would be inadequate. It will not describe what heaven is. So this city, which is a people, has no need of a temple because Jesus himself will be our place of worship. And the goodness found in this place will be unending. There will be no end to the goodness found in heaven. So then this whole depiction of heaven is screaming access. Access. The ability to go somewhere where we could not go before. It says in verse 25, its gates will never be shut. Because there's no fear of evil. There's no desire to worship unworthy things. There is unhindered access to this place. This is what true freedom is. We can walk in and out. We can be in God's presence. And this is what verse 27 says, Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. All of these things that dog us, that haunt us, they will be done away with. They won't be there. The fears that you feel, there's not going to be anything that, that's going to cause those to arise in you. The stress, the busyness, it will all be gone. This is what Jesus accomplishes for us. This will be our final resting place where we truly find the rest that we all yearn for. Okay, lastly then, heaven is a place marked by light. But notice, it has no sun. It's a place marked by light, but it has no sun. The light of the world, Jesus himself, will provide the light in heaven. Now, I can't stand up here and give you a scientific explanation for how that all works out. I don't understand it. But Jesus demonstrated throughout his life that he didn't work within the confines of scientific theory. Science has been a great gift to humanity. But when Jesus comes and he turns water into wine, that's beyond us. When he comes and he touches someone and he heals their sickness, that's beyond us. And this is what we're praying for Michael, right? That God would reach down from heaven and would touch him and would do something that we can't conceive of in our own minds because God is able to do that. He can reach out from outside of our existence into it and he can do something that we and even specialists like doctors can't do, can't figure out. There's no way to explain the things that Jesus can do. It's not natural to our sin-cursed world. It's supernatural. And in this way, it's beyond our understanding. Jesus possesses a goodness, a radiance that will light up the whole of heaven. And it will be awesome. And we will marvel at it. Probably even giggle at it. But even by the fact that this God-man 
Jesus provides light. Even in that, every day will be, even if it's called a day, whatever it's called in heaven, right, we'll be continually reminded of the fact that he alone deserves worship. It's going to compel that in us because we're going to be amazed by that reality and the fact that there is no night. For those of you who love sleep, love to lay your head down at night, this is not bad news at all. Like, th- this will be good news. Your, your satisfaction for the, the fact that there's no night will far outweigh the laying of our heads on pillows. So heaven is intended to be something that is beyond our understanding, but also is pulling us towards it because it's so good. It's so grand. It's so much better than what we understand or conceive of in this world. Okay, a couple points of gospel application here as we close. First of all, behold the Lamb. So clearly everything's being turned to Jesus, right? In these verses, the emphasis on Jesus as lamb is thick, as it has been throughout Revelation. I think it mentions in the verses that we read, I think it was six times that the idea of a lamb was mentioned. So just very pervasive here, right? So this is how Jesus was introduced by John the Baptist. Back at the beginning of the Gospel of John, this is John the Baptist. When he saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that's who Jesus was known as before he died, right? He's being introduced. This is who he is. This is why he came to earth. But what's kind of provocative here is the fact that that's not who he was just on earth, right? But that's who he will be forever. So as we're in heaven and, and all of our time spent there, we are going to be continually reminded of this reality, okay? God is saying we can't get enough of being reminded that Jesus is the slain lamb of God. What happened on the cross will be crucial forever. This is who we will see Jesus as throughout eternity. So, so this is vital for us. So if that's true then, man, this should breathe into our existence here and now. The sacrifice, sacrificial death of Jesus is massive, and it should radically change how we think and how we live here and now. So behold the Lamb, and then just a call. Let's worship Jesus. Let's start this party, this thing that we're looking off into the distance in the future, and we see that's what it's going to be like. Let's start that thing here and now. We read in the verses that we read about today, in heaven, the leaves of the tree, the tree of life that was talked about, will provide healing. And it's saying, at that time, everything will be right. But in certain ways, that reality of everything will be right has broken into our existence here and now as well. Though this world is massively broken and we feel its effects, Satan has been defeated. Sin has been broken. Healing is offered to us 
in the gospel. So let's live like the gospel is true. Let's believe it. This, this made me think a little bit about uh, the movie series Back to the Future. There's this future reality that's kind of being imposed upon our current reality, and that's what's happening here. Let's celebrate. Let's bring to bear what already is and what will be in the future. Let's let it bring to bear on our lives, on our existence here and now. Let me read these verses at the end of the section we read this morning. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. We will worship Jesus as we reign with him forever and ever. The call of this is that Jesus is all. He is all. So as our eyes will be fixated on him in heaven, and he will satisfy beyond what we would believe right now, the call for us now is that our eyes would be fixated on him here and now, and he would be all to us here and now.